Big thank you to Jake for house-sitting and for filling in for teaching. Thank you very much. And for Johnny for teaching last week. I am sorry I missed it because it sounded like it was super good. But thank you guys for filling in. That's that's huge. So uh, we can start tonight if someone wants to open us with some prayer. Aaron, maybe you? Yeah, here we go. Sweet. Thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this night, God. I pray that you would move in this room right now, Lord. We invite your Holy Spirit. And I ask, God, that you would speak through Steve right now, that your word would leap out, God, that it would be alive. Um, Lord, we thank you so much for um, the opportunity uh, to to gather here together. And uh, I just pray that you bless us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 12. Uh, We're going to try and tackle the whole chapter tonight. Uh, Johnny, I think you went the first, like, three verses or so? So five. Okay. We're going to back up and and start in verse one. And just so we're kind of seeing the context here. It says in verse one, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And this Herod here is speaking of Herod Agrippa. And I point that out because we don't just believe or have scriptures that mention things that we're like, no, we swear this is true. There are uh, other cults and other religions that their scriptures point things out. And it's like there's absolutely no evidence for them. But they're just like, yeah, this happened. We swear. Uh, We believe in things that are historical. There is evidence for them. They line up with history history outside of the Bible. They line up with historians who tried to prove the, the Bible wrong and then realize, oh, the Bible is very useful for, you know, finding things historically because we believe in things as, as they happened, not as we hope they happened or we, we think they happened, but factually this happened. And King Herod Agrippa was a real person. And we're going to learn a little bit more about him Later on, tonight's sermon is called Peter, an Angel, and Agrippa. And so we're going to talk about these three things. We're going to see an angel or two, and we're going to be following Peter, and we're going to learn a little bit more about King Agrippa later on. Verse 2 says, Then he, being Agrippa, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, A few things here. Herod did not, even though it says Herod did these things, he did not personally do them, but it was by his command. And I point this out for keeping in mind uh, the topic of headship, which I've taught about before. Uh, We can talk about that at another time, but it's, it's not necessarily him who's doing it, but he's the head of the area. He is the leader, and because he is giving out the command, he is attributed with doing these things. And we'll, again, talk more about him later. Also, uh, Johnny spoke about James's death last week, and as well as all of the disciples. It sounds like it was a heavy sermon, but it's an it's a important one. And the reason that we're looking at this again is because there's a significance here that I really think is important, and that is that well, I'll ask it in a question. When when Jesus did some of the most important things 
in his ministry or when he needed quiet time, he went off alone and he always brought three guys with him. Who do you bring? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. These guys are mentioned in these two verses here. And these guys were Jesus's nearest and dearest best friends. They were his small group, his support group. And they were together all the time. They were with Jesus all the time. And when Jesus gave the Great Commission and ascended into heaven, these guys became the main leaders of Christianity. They became the guys, the three main dudes that are like leading everything. So I think this is significant and important because Herod is not just persecuting and killing and going after Christians the way Saul had done, but he is trying to cut off the head so to speak. He's trying to make it stop by killing the leaders, which obviously is impossible because the head of the church is Christ. And he had already been killed. They had already conspired against him, killed him, and he already conquered death. He rose from death. And they tried to cut off the head so that they would scatter from there, but he beat them. He beat death. He beat sin. He beat the devil. And he even conquered the wrath of God itself for us in uh, dying on the cross, raising again and ascending into heaven. And he's now ruling the kingdom of God at the right hand of God. So with all that being said, that is all true. But another thing that I want to focus on a deeper level of this is that this would have been a massive blow. James is John's brother. And Jesus nicknamed these two guys the Sons of Thunder. They had a reputation. They were always together. They were a, a dueling team. They were like best friends and brothers. And uh, they were, all again, always with Jesus throughout his entire ministry. They saw the whole thing unfold. They were witnesses to everything that happened. And they were loved not only by or, or James was loved not only by John and Peter, but the whole Christian community. They knew these guys. They loved these guys. And we can't breeze over it like a quick sentence, like James died by the sword. Let's like continue moving on. This would have been a devastating blow. This would have been a gut shot. People would be weeping. This is a massive thing that had happened. And even the, the death by a sword was considered like a sort of a shame, shameful way to go. The axe was a bit quicker and more kind, but the, the, the sword took a little bit longer and it hurt a lot more. So to, to die by the sword was a, a violent thing. It was a, it was, it was a massive punishment. Furthermore, uh, we find ourselves in history about 10 to 15 years after Jesus had died, rose again and ascended into heaven. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's right before the Passover. Again, around, there's a little bit of a debate about when, but it's around 10 or 15 years. The point is, it's been a while. So John's brother, one of Peter's best friends, and an important leader to Christianity, he dies here. And now Peter is arrested, it says in verse 3, during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 4 says, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Why after Passover? Well, 
Some think that Herod was planning to make, unlike James, who was probably a quick death in a prison in private, and the Jews were like, hey, like they were, they, they were pleased by James's death, but they probably wanted to see more. So Herod was probably wanting to make a big spectacle of Peter's execution, and everybody was thinking about Passover, so he's like, well, we'll wait till after the feast. Others think that because of the Jewish tradition of releasing one prisoner during Passover, Herod wanted to keep back that they had captured him, ensuring that he would not be the one that he had to release. So he kept it a secret until after Passover and then planned the execution after that. Either way, he wanted to ensure that Peter would not escape this time. And so he gives them over to 16 soldiers to watch him. It says four squads of soldiers. He's like, this this time he's not going to get out of prison. I don't know how it happened last time, but we're going to make sure it doesn't happen now. And in verse 5 it says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So we see here a little bit of a, a comparison that he's under constant watch, under constant guard by soldiers, and constant prayer is also being given for him. There's a there's a battle going on there, and we know that prayer is stronger than any sword or any soldier. So uh, we're going to see how that turns out for Peter. Verse 6 says, And when Herod was about to bring him out, so Passover is over, he is planning to bring Peter out and uh, either execute him or give him his trial. It says, That night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Notice it does not say they were sleeping, they were keeping watch, they were keeping the prison, they were guarding Peter. Verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. This is, again, awesome. <laughs> Here again, we see one of my favorite miracles that happens throughout the Bible. We've read of a couple instances of this happening before, but Peter disappears. Again, normally if the guards are sleeping, it'll say the guards are sleeping. It doesn't say that. It says they're keeping watch, they're guarding. And so Peter has this sort of cloudy sort of dream where the angel's like, hey, get up. And he's like, just doing what the angel, oh, I'm going to go, the angel's going to go show me something in the spirit is what he's thinking. And this tells me that he was probably seeing the guards and like, okay, well, they're awake. They're, you know, keeping watch. They don't see me leaving. So this must be some sort of vision, but it is really happening. And, and they don't notice he's gone until he's long gone. And 
I've experienced things, and I don't know if you guys have. Have you have you ever experienced something that's sort of surreal, sort of cloudy? You're like, I don't know if this is like really happening. Everything's sort of in slow motion. Everything pauses for a real, and you're like, it's just sort of a surreal thing. Or maybe it's after the fact, and you're like, did that really happen? Like that's what was going on with Peter until they turned down this one street, and the angel's just gone, and he's like, wait, like what? Like that was real? So we continue in verse 11, it says, And when Peter had come to himself, again, he's just like, what? That was real? This is crazy. He said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. This is an interesting verse to me because he says, Now I know for certain. And it's interesting, too, that Luke records this like sort of internal processing that Peter's doing. The angel gets him out of prison. He walks all this way, gets down the street, and then he realizes what mir- the miracle that happened. And he's like, now I know for certain. And, it, and it's interesting to me because this has happened to Peter before. He was in prison. The angel says, come on, go preach in the synagogue. And he goes with him. And again, he disappears. And then he appears outside of the jail so why is he like now i know for certain peter has seen other miracles he's performed other miracles by the holy spirit working in and through him he's seen and done a lot of things but he still says only now do i know for certain this is an interesting thing and i was thinking about it again it's been 10 to 15 years since his ministry started jesus left him this super devastating thing just happened. One of his best friends just died, and right after, he's arrested. I think he's downtrodden by the death of James and the time it's been since Jesus has left. He's just kind of like, I don't know if you've had somebody close to you die, a family member or a close friend, but some common questions and feelings that happen is like, how am I supposed to continue my life as if nothing has changed. Like, th- this, there's a hole in me now. There's something missing. And, and often people come to a point when trauma happens like that, where they're just like, uh, they're like, man, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, there's meaninglessness. Like, I, I thought life was normal and good and right, but now that there's this weird thing that happened to me this trauma i feel like like what am i even doing like am i do is anything i'm doing even making a difference jesus is gone now my best friend has died like things are falling apart like is my ministry worth anything and i think that there is a renewed sense of mission in Peter when this happens to him. His focus is restored by this miracle. And he's like, now I know I needed this, you know? And so what I'll say is when, when you get to a point where you're questioning your purpose or you're questioning your, your, your mission, you're, you're questioning your calling from God. And I I say when, not if, because it's going to happen. You're going to hit a wall and you're going to be like, is this what God wants me to do? And my encouragement to you is that you won't just give up and just be like, uh, it's meaningless. I quit. That's not what God wants you to do. Rather, I'll say, look for confirmation from God. Ask God for confirmation. Say, man, I, 
I, I know you called me to do this thing, but I'm struggling right now. I need, I need something. I need you to, to, to speak to me. And I don't say this because we seek a sign. We seek a miracle. Jesus said, uh, a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except for the prophet Jonah, meaning they already had what they needed. They didn't need a miracle. And that's why Jesus said that thing. So we don't seek a sign. But when God gives you a sign or gives you a miracle, we glorify him and we take that renewed sense of mission and we just give God the glory and continue in what he has called us to do. And I think that that's what happened for Peter here is that he, he's dealing with this trauma. He's depressed in jail and just kind of like whatever, whatever happens to me, happens to me. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And so God sends this angel, releases him, and gives him this renewed sense of vision. We can continue here in verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, different John, it says whose, whose surname is Mark. This is the person whose the gospel of Mark is, is attributed to this man. It says where many had gathered together praying. I'm going to pause here and say this is super important. I think too much emphasis is given in our sort of Christian culture that like your personal relationship with God is all that matters and, and personal relationship and personal relationship and you, 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 you. That is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is you, all Christians, are the body of Christ, are the temple together. So when we meet together, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst, right? In community, in Christian, in holy community, that's where the Holy Spirit is alive and well. So these people are coming together with one purpose, with one mission, and that is to pray for Peter and the church. And they're doing that here. Verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. She's excited. She hears Peter's voice. She knows Peter's voice. Again, a significant thing. As we read before, Peter didn't just, you know, keep his distance from the people, preach, and then like go off and hide somewhere. He was intimately involved with the Christian community. Everybody knew him. They knew his voice. They recognized his voice. So he's knocking kind of like, hey, like, let me in. It's me. And she's like, oh, and she runs in the other room to tell everybody that he's here. And she's so excited that she just leaves him out in the night uh, knocking on the door. Verse 15, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Um, we're going to have a slight digression from our story here. Don't forget what's going on because I think that's the main importance here. But this is a, an interesting verse and there's much to be said here. Peter's angel, they, they assumed it's not actually him, it's Peter's angel. So there's sort of three ways that people interpret this. The first one is that it's simply a messenger from Peter. The, the word angelos, when speaking of a messenger from heaven, that's an angel. It's, it's always translated angel. But the same writer Luke in his gospel speaks of John sending in angelos, a messenger, to go speak to Jesus. Jesus sends a messenger for another reason. So that word is used simply as a messenger. So 
there's one thought that he's they're, they're like no it's not actually Peter it's his it's a messenger from Peter but the insistence is not oh it's a messenger from Peter it's I recognize his voice I know it's Peter he's out there so other people will say two other things that it was possibly Pete, they thought that it was Peter's spirit or his ward there was a belief in that culture that just before a man's death that his ward or his spirit would leave him and visit his loved ones one last time if that's what they're saying then they would have considered this a very ill omen and see it that their prayers for peter were being denied that his ward showed up to tell him nope Peter's actually going to die. So they would have been, oh man, it's it's his ward. It's it's his spirit coming to tell us that he's actually going to die. That's one thought. Another thought, and this is probably the one I've heard taught the most, is that it was Peter's guardian angel. That he it was an angel that they thought it was Peter's guardian angel that apparently looked and sounded just exactly like him. I will say that the idea of a guardian angel mostly comes from Roman thought, actually. And this is, again, a product of their culture where the, the Romans and the Greeks, they would have called this a genius or a good genius. That uh, a man had a spirit connected to him that looked, up, looked out for him, guarded at his every move, sometimes impersonated him. And yes, I said genius. This is where the idea of a, a genius person comes from. They would say, oh, he has a genius. That's how they used to talk. And it was a spirit giving them this special talent or this special insight. And we kind of converted that into, oh, he's a genius. But really where that comes from is a spirit influencing a person. And that sort of bled into Christian culture where they said, oh, every person has a guardian angel. Biblically, we don't really see that. Biblically, more is what we see is we have a host of angels. The angels are here to comfort, minister, protect, fight for in the spiritual realm for us and around us and with us. We don't have one single angel or spirit looking out for us and giving us this special insight. We have the Holy Spirit living in us and a host of angels uh, at our disposal for when we call on God. God to have his angels protect us or whatever, minister to us as, as they did for Jesus. So those are the three sort of ideas. Do some more of your own study. It's very interesting. We don't know exactly what they thought, you know, what they were claiming, but what we do know is they were wrong. <laughs> so whether they assumed it was a messenger from Peter or a spirit or his spirit, the basic idea is it wasn't any of those things. And it doesn't prove that any of the things that they may have thought actually exist. What it does prove is that they were wrong because it was actually Peter standing at the gate. So let's get back to our story in verse 16. It says, Now Peter continued knocking. He's, again, stuck out in the night, left out in the dark to knock and call for them. And it says, And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them, to keep silent, right? He puts his hands out, he puts his hand to his lips, whatever it is, he motions to them, be quiet because he's obviously supposed to be in prison. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, go tell these things to James 
and to the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. Again, this is a different James. This is a different James. Okay. This is a the James who's attributed to writing a different book of the Bible, bearing his name. This is the brother of Jesus. This is James who wrote the James of the New Testament. Because John's brother James, as we know, died a little bit earlier. So Peter tells them, hey, this angel showed up. He hit me on the side to wake me up. He did the, all this stuff. And he says, go and tell them what happened. Tell them how I was released. And then he goes to presumably tell more people. Peter is spreading his newfound inspiration for his ministry and for the Christian people to other Christians. He's trying to encourage and stir up the Christian people. Like, I know we're all downtrodden. We just had this major massive loss. We need to pull together Christ is still alive. The Holy Spirit is moving. Angels are setting me free from prison. There is stuff happening, and we need to be on high alert. So he tells them what happened. He says, go tell the other guys, and he goes to tell other Christians. He is trying to wake up the Christian community out of this sort of funk that Agrippa has put them in. Verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But Herod had searched for him and not found him. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So even though Herod took extra precautions to make sure Peter doesn't disappear, the angel sets him free. He's furious and presumably has all 16 guards put to death for not doing their job, for losing Peter and for allowing him to escape again. He's furious. He carries out this sentence, and then he goes down to Caesarea. Now, this, this sentence at the end of verse 19 that brings us from around 42 AD to 44 AD, and we know that because of what's about to happen. There was some sort of games or Olympic situation happening in an arena in Caesarea in 44 AD, and that's where we find ourselves continuing in verse 20. It says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We don't know, I mean, we could probably research why he was angry, but that really doesn't matter to our story. It says, But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Side note, Blastus is a pretty cool name. Too bad he wasn't a cooler guy. Uh, verse 21, it says, So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. Now, Josephus, who is a prominent Jewish historian, he gives us a little more details about this royal apparel. He says that this apparel was made completely of silver. And he writes that when Agrippa entered the theater early in the morning, all of the silver that he was wearing and the, the very fancy garment that was under the silver, it reflected the sun's rays and he glowed. He was shining like an angel, basically. And he is literally just like walking in arrayed in glory, basically, and glowing as if he's some sort of angel. And then he gives this speech 
which the people loved. I mean, they just loved everything he said. We don't know exactly what he said, but the people loved it. And actually, the people had already loved him. The Jewish Encyclopedia uh, records that he ruled his subjects, it says, ruled his subjects with compassion and friendliness. He honored the law. He actually lived as a Jew. And it says that like the merest commoner, he carried his basket of first fruits to the temple. So he was hanging out with his people. He was caring for his people. He was being friendly to his people. And it says with the people, he celebrated appropriately the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, partaking in all the, the Jewish feasts and um, celebrations. And there's this one occasion that's recorded that while he's in the streets, he meets a bridal procession. And they, they draw up and they stop and they, they, they honor their leader and say, please continue walking. And he halts himself and he, he makes sure that they take precedence. He doesn't want to interrupt the bridal procession. So he is seen as a very good, a very kind, a very humble leader. And he also did a number of political things that just made everybody, including all the Jews, just love and adore him. So he is loved by the people. He is loved by the Jews. He is, um, as we've seen already, Saul or Paul later calls himself zealous in persecuting the church. So the Jews saw Saul as this zealous Jewish guy, and they would have seen Agrippa in a similar way. Like he's a great guy. He loves Judaism and he is fighting for Judaism. He's killing the Christians who are opposing Judaism. They would have seen him as a really like really good guy. And I point this out because I know we all know this in our head, but nobody can be good enough to get into heaven. And we know that, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we've heard that since we were tiny children. Everybody knows that you can't be good enough to get into heaven. Like Jesus is the only way. We know that. But to observe a person who is by all accounts, especially by your culture, a good person, and to experience that in a personal level is like, it's a little different. And if I can be a little honest, like it's something that I've struggled with recently because I have this friend who is not a Christian and he is such a good guy. Like, he is more moral and, like, he displays more goodness than most Christians that I know. Like, super kind, loving dude, always looking to serve people. The kind of guy who's walking down the street, he sees somebody taking a, two people taking a selfie. And he's like, oh, can I, can I take your picture for you guys? Like, I don't, I don't do that. I walk by people. I ignore people. I don't do all that stuff. But this guy goes out of his way to show goodness to people. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in Jesus and he doesn't believe in anything that he did, but he's such a good guy. And it's like, is this guy really going to hell if he doesn't turn? And the answer is, yeah, he is. And no matter how good a person, how, how good we think a person is, if they don't believe in Jesus, they're on their way to hell. And this is a sad but true thing that we need to realize and go out of our way to be good and kind to them and loving to them and try and pull them, not only being goodness for their own sake, but for God's sake. And make sure that we aren't 
judging people according to our culture, the way that the Jews did, like, man, Agrippa's great. He's doing everything that our culture says you should do. Like, he's doing all the feast days. He's following all the laws. He's even killing Christians. Like, we look at them like, that's horrible and wicked. But they were like, he's a good guy. Like, he's a great guy. And I think we can get caught up in our culture sometimes and think the same way. Like, man, he's better than my Christian friends. Like, he's got to be going to heaven. It's like, well, that's not really how it works. We, we need to, to, to realize that. We need to make that a reality in our lives and make sure that we're not judging people. We are not the judge. Jesus is literally the only way. And what you think about Jesus, what anybody thinks about Jesus, that's the most important thing about your life, about their lives. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. And if you think Jesus is nothing or nobody, he's not God, you're in a bad position. You're positioning yourself against your creator. And that's what Agrippa did. This man, Agrippa, he is adored by all the people. He is seen as a great man. And he steps out in front of the people who love him in the midst of this arena. He's glowing like an angel. And he makes this great speech. And in verse 22, it says, And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God! and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. They're all chanting, proclaiming his goodness, proclaiming his godness, and saying, you're a God, you're not a man. And Josephus records that uh, upon this thing happening, the king neither rebuked or rejected their impious flattery, is what Josephus says. And they also ask for mercy from him, as if he's their God. Verse 23 says, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Giant worms. <laughs> now, yeah. Like, it's like a quick... I knew it. That, I had the same thought, and that's what you picture, right? That he's sort of swarmed by... Worms instantly, and then is eaten alive. <laughs> the Bible's descriptions of death are the best. <laughs> so like straight to the point. <laughs> so he was like eaten by worms. No. No. Again, Josephus and other historians record that they don't record that the angel strikes him, but the Bible does. So. A, an angel strikes him for taking God's glory, stealing the glory from God and putting it on himself. And five days later, he dies. His heart is hurting. His innards are hurting, literally being eaten by worms. And it takes him five days to die. And during this time, he rebukes his friends for glorifying him. He doesn't take the responsibility of taking that glory and saying, no, 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 I'm not God. He rebukes his friends. You shouldn't have glorified me. I mean, we all know it. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have said it. So he knows. He knows what he's, that he's being punished for it. It's recorded that in the moment where he takes that glory, he feels the pain in his gut. Um, he's literally, it, it hits him. It strikes him. Mm -hmm. And he looks up and he sees an owl which he has seen an owl at other significant times in his life, and it's normally an omen in his mind for good, but this time he sees it, and as soon as he sees it, he knows it means he's going to die. And that's when he 
I think it, the recording is actually right then and there he rebukes his friends for glorifying him because he knows he's going to die. Uh, and five days later, <laughs> he does. Wait, so he was struck by an angel, though. Yeah. yeah. So is that like he like fall down like in front of everyone or like? Uh, again, the historians say that he was it. He like kind of doubled over. He felt it as if he was struck, and his innards and his heart began to hurt then and until he died but it doesn't record that he like fell or anything but he knew something had hit him and that's actually the next point that I'm not sure if you noticed an interesting parallel but someone else was hit earlier do you remember verse 7 an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side. Peter doesn't have worms. Peter did not get worms. This angel is all about hitting people. <laughs> this about hitting people. Yeah, that's not serious. Uh, you may remember another sermon in this series called Waxing Clay where I quoted an old Puritan quote that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so that parallel here makes me think of that again, because everyone will be struck by the righteousness of God. Uh, each person will have the light of Christ, the glory of God, shine upon them. And those who are consumed by darkness will shrink and die. And those who are of the light, to use the language of First John, they'll be made stronger as Peter was. They'll be encouraged. They will feel that light. They will feel the glory of God and they will be strengthened. They will not shrink and die and be eaten by worms, but they will be strengthened to do their ministry. And what we see here is the counterfeit and the real thing. And when the real thing shows up, the counterfeit crumbles. And we see in Peter's life, he doesn't seek to glorify himself. He seeks to glorify God. We see in Peter's life an angel showing up in the darkest place that is possible in this prison cell and light not coming from reflection, but from the glory of God. This angel is coming from the presence of God. And just like when Moses saw the back of God, his face shone from seeing the glory of God. Angels, that's why they glow, because they dwell in the presence of God. So the glory of God lights the prison, and he guides Peter from his captivity. Not the counterfeit of a man building this suit so that he can shine as if he's an angel, but the real thing shining because of the glory of God. We see not the the, the, the counterfeit being struck by the light, the glory of God, and then shrinking and dying and being eaten by worms. But in Peter's life, again, seeing the glory of God and being strengthened, empowered, and, and sent on his way to do the will of God continually. Everything that any of us do, any, everything that anyone does will rot and be eaten by worms unless we have Jesus. We enter into eternity when we ask Jesus into our lives. He makes what we do eternal, and we, we, we store up treasures in heaven 
when we do things for God. When we do things that are good and great and, and fantastic and everybody loves them, but we don't do it for Jesus, it's just going to rot. It's just trash. And it's not ultimately even good because Hebrews, Hebrews 11 says, without faith in Jesus, it's impossible to please God. So no matter what good you're doing, if you're not doing it for God, then you're only glorifying yourself and you are a counterfeit. So let's make sure the good that we do, we point to God and say the, the reason, the purpose for my goodness, the reason, the purpose for anything good that is in my life is Jesus. Goodness is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit is living in us, goodness will, it will, it will come out of us. And we can see our good friends. We can see people who are maybe not saved and be inspired by them, being like, man, they're better than I am. I should strive to have more goodness. Because in, in striving to have more goodness, I'm not doing it to glorify myself. And so other people can be like, oh, he's so good, but I can do it to glorify God. And that's the difference. That's the change. That's not the fake thing, but that's the real thing, is to point to Jesus and saying, anything good in my life is because of him. It's not rotting. It's going to go on for eternity because the Holy Spirit lives within me. Verse 24 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. When the light shines, the darkness is expelled. So Agrippa dies, and there is now light, and there is some freedom for the Christians, and they are growing and multiplying. Verse 25 says, And Barnabas, our friend again, the son of encouragement, and Saul returned from Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, depending on your interpretation, when they fulfilled their ministry. So it really doesn't matter to from their ministry is about to, they, they finished the ministry of taking the things to the elders, and now they're, they're, next week we're going to follow Barnabas, we're going to follow Paul, and we're going to follow Mark on this first missionary trip that they're going to take. It says that uh, when they fulfilled their ministry, they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So again, that's the end of chapter 12. And next week we're, we're going to follow these guys on the first missionary trip. It's always contributed to Paul, but this whole group goes on this missionary trip, and we'll see more from there. The sort of takeaway that I, I want to leave you with again is, and maybe this is just my takeaway, but because I've been struggling with this thing, but no matter how good you think somebody is, if they're not glorifying God with that goodness, it's just fake, and it's just counterfeit, and it's just going to rot. So when you encounter godliness, when you encounter the presence of an angel or the presence of God, use whatever inspiration you get from that to glorify God as Peter did. Not to say, oh, look, I saw this thing and I experienced this thing. Come to me and, and you'll be able to experience this thing too. Again, pointing to me as the source of this good thing that happened. No. Make sure to always say, you know, anything good, any miracle that happened was God doing it for me, for the good of others. Glorify God in, what, in whatever gift he gives you. So with that, we'll close in prayer and look forward to uh, Paul and Barnabas's first missionary trip next week. Dear God, we love you and we praise you and thank you for all the gifts that you give us. 
God, and uh, we couldn't name them if we tried, God, but I pray that you will help us to focus on the good in our lives and to give you the glory for all that good. Uh, Help us not to seek to glorify ourselves, but to glorify you, God, and I pray that you will, in those times of doubt, in those times of questioning our purpose or our ministry, God, I pray that you will send us confirmation, whether it be by an angel, a dream, or just the Holy Spirit lighting uh, anew that passion in us that you have us to, to carry out the mission that you have for us, God. I pray that you will empower us and confirm in us the calling that you've already given us, God. We love you and we praise you, and I pray that uh, you bless the rest of our evening and our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.